You know, we were covering this in real time with so much uncertainty and having to account for our own safety of the staff, our own means of production. And unlike a terror attack, which we've covered here, sadly, a finite amount of time and we kind of know how to approach that. This was uncertain. The enemy, the virus was unpredictable and we knew so little. That was WNBC anchor David Ushery. WNBC was honored with a DuPont Award for their coverage of the New York City metro area when it was the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic last spring. Their coverage provided viewers with life and death information in real time. Hello and welcome to another episode of On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright and I run the prizes department at Columbia Journalism School. And I am joined today as always by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen, who runs the DuPont Columbia Awards. How are you doing, Lisa? Hey, Abby, uh, I am doing well. I hope you are as well. We uh, both have gotten our second vaccines. And we were both really happy to be able to pitch in and volunteer at a local vaccination site where we were able to get our shots. And I am enjoying the spring weather when I can, and I'm getting ready for DuPont submissions to open. Already, that's right. I can't wait to see all the great work that I know will come pouring in. Absolutely. It is, an, it is a great time of year when we get to see the excellent reporting being entered for DuPonts. Uh, but today we are here to talk about one of our 2021 winners, WNBC, uh, and to talk about it is their anchor, David Ushery. Yes, I had a chance to sit down with David and I talked to him in depth about what it was like to cover COVID while also living through the first wave of pandemic here in New York City. Yeah, I remember that time and just how challenging it really was. Uh, we were adjusting to Zoom, working from home, and I can't imagine what it was like for a local news team to try to make sense of rapidly changing information while also putting out broadcasts every day. And the challenges weren't just technical. Many members of the WNBC staff had loved ones who became sick with COVID. And uh, we're gonna hear a little bit about that. One thing that really, really stuck out to me in our conversation was, how intensely personal this story became for them. Well, that's why they won a DuPont Award. And why I was so glad that I could start our conversation by giving David the good news that they were winners. It's so fun to hear his reaction. So without further ado, let's get into this edited conversation with Lisa Cohen and WNBC anchor, David Ushery. So, um. We set up these interviews because WNBC has been chosen as a 2021 DuPont winner. What? No, no. <laughs> Wait, you're, what? I mean, this is, <laughs> everyone's going to think this is not, this is not contrived. I, I just, there's nothing in my mind that would have thought you would have said that. Listen, as the journalist me, I have to make sure it's accurate uh, and check. Lisa, you said that WNBC is a 2021 DuPont winner. WNBC's coronavirus coverage okay. is winning a 2021 DuPont winner. Okay. Um, Isabel, you heard that, right? I didn't misunderstand it. Not that I, tr I don't trust myself on that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you understand. I'm checking with the producer. At least you understand that. Okay. I think it's always good to check with the producer. <laughs> it's not often I'm speechless, but I, I, I really, I really am. What is the significance of the DuPont award for journalists like for a journalist like you, for journalists in general? For a journalist like me is what uh, is the acknowledgement 
that journalism matters, that the hard work matters. And for me, as a local broadcaster, the DuPont has always, always acknowledged that. You know, we've got so much uh, on the media landscape, and sometimes it gets stereotyped and painted with a broad brush. The media, the media, or the local news. Why does the local news always hype the weather? Why do they always go for it bleed it leads? And look, some of that is warranted, maybe. But I know for a fact, because I've been doing it for 30 years, that there are dedicated, hardworking, curious reporters and photographers who bring an enthusiasm every day. They show up and they bring that devotion. And I feel like the DuPont, when I look at the winners, the past winners, and certainly some of the finalists, acknowledges that in, in markets near and far, big and small. And so I'm grateful for that. And I'm so humbled on behalf of all of us and not just those of us uh, who reported the stories, but on behalf of the people who allowed us to share their stories. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's extraordinary the work that journalists have been doing this year. And um, I watched the submission reel this weekend, which was hours of coverage. Yeah. And I felt like what I was watching was basically the lead of every story, one after the other. I mean, there was just so much. It felt like a blur almost to me. Does it feel like a blur to you? Absolutely, that's the word that I most often use, a blur. And I watched it as well. And, and it took me back to various moments and points in time. I mean, in many ways, March and the start seemed so long ago. Uh, but in watching it, then I remember those feelings I had for the first news conference with Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio when we were talking about the one case, the woman who was, who was, who was in the healthcare field who flew back from Iran and knew enough to kind of isolate it took me back to that moment, the uncertainty there, and then the lawyer, the attorney in Midtown, first community spread. And that just elevated to another level. And now when we're looking back through the prism, which is why I think you understand, someone here who's been living through it as well, the idea that we're saying some of the same kinds of headlines with, do we have the PPE and, and some of our uh, nurses and doctors really at their wits end because they survived and got through something that, uh, frankly, I don't understand how they did sometimes. It must be so frustrating, actually. Indeed, it is. It's frustrating because, honestly, I, I think there was a feeling of those of us who lived and worked in the tri-state in that early, uh, in the early days as the epicenter, who thought, well, all right, we're going to get through this as New Yorkers, and other parts of the country are going to benefit from it. It's disheartening at times. It's, it's almost like a time capsule. It's like um, you watch the beginning and there's all these things unfolding that no one knew until you all were telling us. There was a virus in China, but it's going to be okay here. There's a couple of cases here, but we're going to be okay. You can get it through droplets. Learning as you went, that must have been, what was that like? It was uh, at times surreal because, you know, we were covering this in real time with so much uncertainty and having to account for our own safety of the staff, our own means of production. And unlike a terror attack, which we've covered here, sadly, um, or a major event, like a weather event, a finite amount of time, and we kind of know how to approach that. This was uncertain. The enemy, the virus was unpredictable, and we knew so little. And I remember in the earliest, earliest days, Lisa, I, I sat down with Dr. David Ho, one of the pioneers as uh, you know, from Columbia in, in AIDS research and his early messaging. And I remember discussing, as we know now, why the messaging was about masks at the time. But in the very early days, it was not a, a, a complete and consistent messaging about masks. 
we've come to learn that a lot of that had to do with the fear of supply running out, but also I think there was some uncertainty of the vibe. Did the mask protect you? Did it protect me? What level of protection? And then that evolved. Uh, so many other aspects, the proximity, uh, touching of surfaces, all of that. And for us in the tri-state, all of these pillars, school systems, largest, right? Mass transit, largest, you know, um, healthcare systems, large. We had to figure this out for a lot of people and interpret that as we tried to figure it out ourselves. And, and in looking at the, the application video that, that our team put together, I felt like if, we hear this, right? If you were dropped from another planet and said, explain this, this coronavirus pandemic to me and your experience. If you watch that three hours, I think you'd have a good sense from the fear, the anxiety, some uplifting moments, the adaptability of New Yorkers, the resiliency of New Yorkers, the teamwork of New Yorkers, the painful loss, uh, the government missteps. All of that, I think, was a part of this story that, again, I have to stress at the time that you and I speak, is ongoing. And I would like to know what it feels like. You're the conveyor of information to the public, which is critical. And you're telling them things, and then you're finding out afterwards, like you gave them the wrong information because it was the information you got. Yeah. What was that like? It, and what did you do about that? It's, a, it's, a, it's an uncertain feeling. It's a precarious feeling. You know, uh, we, we always, as, as journalists, would rather hold back and then be second but right on something as opposed to get information that turns out not to be the case. It was uncertain. And what we had to do is, is bank on our longstanding relationship with the tri-state viewers. And this is one of those moments where I was felt strongest and proud to be a part of a local news operation, taking nothing away from our national network colleagues and newspapers and broadcasts, but local because that relationship is built over time so that I could wind up a news conference and look at the viewer and say, frankly, we're not sure what the governor meant or the governor was inconsistent yesterday. Our team is looking at it as soon as we know we'll let you know. And I think anecdotally, Lisa, based on feedback from viewers who did reach out and what my colleagues heard, they appreciated that. That's a calling we all take seriously, I think, as journalists, no matter where we work. It raises a, a question that, you know, DuPont has a really big commitment to local television I know. news because we understand its importance. And I would like you, if you can, to speak to that a little bit. Like, why is local news so critical? I've always highly regarded the DuPont and appreciated the work over the years because it is important. And we found out in this story was a hyper local story. Of course, there were national trends and there are trends that continue to play out. I can say this story literally changed from street to street. And I'll explain what I mean. In the early days of the containment zone in New Rochelle, they just kind of tried to figure out what area they were still, you know, evolving, even the health officials. And so they formed this containment zone. Uh, but you had situations where, uh, and I know because a parent called me, said, look, one of my children goes to school in the containment zone. The other child goes to school outside of the containment zone. So one can go, one can't, but we're coming back to the same household. That's not achieving the objective of curbing the spread. And these are the early time challenges, right? Or we have it with the, the indoor-outdoor dining, where you could be in the New York City range and not be able to go inside but maybe go up to Westchester if, you, if you're in the northern part of Manhattan and go up and maybe sit inside. So this became a hyper-local story. And this was a community need. Um, this was a, a, a national emergency, but certainly a state and local emergency. And that's where we're the arbiter. Often, 
Lisa, in local, what do we have to do? We have to take municipal budget numbers, complicated, and break that down for the viewer. This is really what it means for you and your neighborhood. Well, now this, we had these numbers, these, these slopes, right? These statistical slopes. We're on the upside of the mountain. We have positivity rates, rate of transmission. What does all this mean that I'm being bombarded with? And you have to do that when we know the viewer is filled with anxiety and fear. And frankly, so were we. So that's why I felt the role in local and all of this, and I've been doing local all my career, um, was extraordinary. And not just me and our station, but in all my colleagues, because I know them and I know what we were up against. Tell me a little bit about like the basics. Like, how are you doing this? How are you getting the news out? Like at the beginning of this, did you all rush home? Where were you reporting from? Early on, I, I remember the first conversation when it started, we started reporting that there's concern uh, in China as coming to the United States, coming to JFK. My news director came to me and the weekend co-anchor and she said, you know, I don't know that we'll get to this, but hypothetically, if we needed to broadcast from home, can we put a camera in your home, in your apartment? So she just asked two of us and we were like, fine, yeah, still seemed like a, 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 a concept that was not really imaginable, but yeah, I understand. And it went rather quickly, Lisa, from that to every anchor is getting a camera in their home. We're starting to put them in over the next two weeks. But then things started to really evolve in March. If you remember in March, how quickly it went from, again, we talked about it earlier, the uh, healthcare person who took the plane from Iran, then the attorney in the Rochelle. That spreads up into Westchester and Riverdale, uh, near, frankly, where my son was going to school. And then we started to see this rate of transmission and positivity. So at that point, two things happened at 30 Rock. The building managers decide we're going to shut this building to the public for a while. We were deemed early on, this was significant, Lisa, I think you know, essential workers. And that was a question early on. I remember when the governor was asked about that in an early news conference and he said, oh, the media, essential workers. All right, we'll get back to you on that. And then it was because it, we, we didn't know how much movement would be slowed, but that was critical. So we shut the building down, reduced our capacity in the newsroom. But my news director said, are you, I live nearby and we still think as best we can, if we can keep our core operation operating here to get on the air, it's important. So we're gonna have a handful of people here. Are you okay coming in? And I was, Lisa. As long as the building was open and some people were coming in, I wanted to go in. Um, but most of our anchors went remote. Our reporters and photographers were then assigned to each other to work with each other daily to, to limit, their, limit their, their pod, create their own little pod in their vehicle. And they were signed geographically, so they weren't moving about the tri-state a lot. And, and again, that's just the physical aspect, the technical aspect. Initially, you'd have a reporter who says, you know, I'm not comfortable getting a soundbite. Or, or maybe the person isn't comfortable with me getting a soundbite. One of our photographers came up with the idea to take a light stand and take the mic to the end of it and created the six feet. Then you started seeing that everywhere. Uh, and then doing what we're doing right here, Zoom. Uh, initially, as a television broadcast entity in New York City, the idea of doing a little computer or iPhone Zoom would just be subpar, not quality. Quickly, that became normalized, Lisa. And now, <laughs> I find it ironic, when we did return to the studio, even in studio, we started mimicking some shots so they look like the Zoom shots because we feel the viewer uh, had become accustomed to it. So we'll do boxes like this, but we are in studio. So the adaptability was ongoing, is ongoing, but I marveled, I, I was in the studio, but I marveled as I saw all of our coverage of my colleagues out in the field 
how quickly uh, they were adapting to do what? To get the story. Because as much as we were fearful and fearful of our families and our kids, as all of our viewers were, I think reporters and certainly journalists get into it to tell the story. And there was such a need, as you know. So that's interesting. I mean, how do you cover a story when it's this personal, when it's about, you know, everyone's family that's reporting it? So early on, one of our colleagues from NBC News, who many of us had worked alongside, we didn't work directly with him, but we worked alongside him often. I had worked overseas uh, next to Larry. Early on, he had some underlying conditions. And I remember the day I'm walking into 30 Rock and the note goes out that Larry's passed away due to complications from COVID-19. And I had to stop. I had to stop. And then a number of our other colleagues, too. So that was early on. I would say March or April, where we still had a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and that, you know, instills a lot of fear. Um, right. Other colleagues. Then in our families, it started happening. And probably the pinnacle for us, and I think you saw was the father of our weekend anchor uh, who passed away. So tonight we share a conversation about what it's like when a story, a big story, hits home. Many people remember your first day back on the air. You weren't going to mention it because you were like, look, the story's not about me. Well, tonight there are signs of some progress in this daily battle. But your friend and colleague Jose Diaz-Billart acknowledges it. And there's a moment there. From NBC Nightly News, good to have Jose Diaz-Balart here. And I'm thinking of you and your family, my dear friend, all the best. That was a really hard day. And how could you not think about your own father? You know, how, how could I not think about that? And we wrestled with whether to tell that story, honestly, because, again, for the most part, our instinct is not to focus on us. When Adam Cooperstein decided that, and along with my news director said, no, there's a story to tell here, it was because how he experienced early on couldn't get testing sent home from the uh, emergency room, then in the emergency room, getting on a respirator so quickly, and then having to say goodbye by way of FaceTime. All of those we felt connected to viewers who had experienced that, and that's the way we approached it, and that's why we told that story. So you were in the studio every day you came into work? I did, as long as I could. There was some concern about that. I didn't want to, um, my family to get sick. Um, but we took the proper steps. And again, our capacity was reduced in the newsroom. But in the early days, like all of us, you know, there was, there was a, a great deal of anxiety. I felt like in these uncertain times, if the viewer could see something that's familiar and see the people that's familiar, it might be reassuring. So that coming from the rock, 30 rock for us, and again, anecdotally, from some feedback I got, I, I think that's true. And um, was there burnout? Did you have situations where people just had to step back? It's a great question. I think because we were so distant and disconnected, I don't know. In other words, I'm sure there was. I know me personally, there was a stretch there where I just, I was, I was just feeling numb. Um, and then ended up taking a few days off and trying not to focus on it. Uh, but you know us, we're, we're driven by this adrenaline, we're driven by this proximity to the story, and we're driven by the great need of the story that if we don't remind ourselves that we need to take a step back. And I will say at some point, my managers did start to put that message out. You know, this came up with terror attacks too, or ongoing crisis like that after a while, if you've witnessed it, where we acknowledge some of the emotional stress and trauma, if you will, on reporters and photographers. Not something that we always acknowledge existed, but I do feel that conversation is being had more. And it should be. 
Are there particular moments that really stood out to you that you felt either they are just so monumental or you did such a great job of covering them at WNBC? I think one in particular was Melissa Russo's reporting on the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Our Melissa Russo was the first person to report the pattern of these pediatric cases back in April. State health officials took action as a result, and today they published what they know so far. The study confirms a link between the illness, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC as we now call it, and COVID-19. And the release today comes as we're learning that the number of children developing this post-viral syndrome is thankfully tapering off. Melissa, a 25-year-plus veteran of this market, covering city government, covering city agencies, and hearing about this and having the ability to not only find the doctors, but find the parents and the children who experienced this and really uh, shed light on something that had not emerged in the realm of public health officials. But then Melissa gets word of this illness that presents like Kawasaki disease, but there are some differences and the link seemed to be positive COVID tests. And if I tell you watching and seeing her early reports with a few handful of cases, and asking at these news conferences of, of, of public health officials, state health commissioners, and them not really knowing. And I saw with each day with her report, her report, and then it gets picked up by other health officials elsewhere in the country and the world, until finally some movement and acknowledgement of Melissa by name, and this is not for her glorification, she'd be the first to tell you that, but acknowledging that this reporting is significant enough that we have had to take a look and, lead, and it led to some changes with notifications from hospitals to the state health officials. And I think for parents who must have been so fearful and not understanding the ability to identify that and follow it through as a journalist and as a viewer, quite frankly, it was extraordinary to see. Yeah, the MISC thing was so interesting because it was so, the symptoms were so different than what people were experiencing with COVID. And so there was no connection and you just couldn't make any sense of what was going on. So to be able to make that connection was such an important thing. Right, right. And, to, and it, and it, and it required, and, and again, required Melissa to do this reporting in the circumstances of the time. So you couldn't just like go to the hospital and talk. She had to pull together the various layers and the people and the sourcing. She had sources in state health government some of them afraid to speak out. They didn't want to get out in front of the governor, who, frankly, I think would acknowledge now, was a little bit slower to react to that or at least acknowledge it. Ultimately, they did. Yeah, I saw that one press conference where they're like, well, we're following yeah. Melissa's reporting. Right. We'll get back to you. Right. How has the pandemic changed the way you do your job? And maybe it's how you do your job now, and maybe it's also how you might do your job going forward. Yeah, I mean, I um, not only not only reporting, but also the the meetings that we might have and putting together our coverage or or various aspects of, of doing the job. I'm an in-person kind of guy. You know, I like to feel the energy of the person I'm interviewing. I like to see them. I like to play off the play, use all my senses for the environment. And frankly, this makes it harder to do. Um, the, the, the screen, while it, while it worked for us and it's a safer way, uh, 
as a sponge type reporter and journalist, um, it's a little disappointing. And even if that's conversations before we get to the interview stage, right? You, there's a lot you can tell by the energy, by the vibe. I'm hoping that that will restore and get back to normal. I always thought I was a good listener to be a reporter, but listening became so incredibly important uh, in this. Listening to the elected officials and really hearing what they were saying and what they're not saying, perhaps. Uh, listening to the you know restaurant uh, workers telling us, like, look, I was not in a line for a soup kitchen ever, but I am now. What does that tell us? As we still try to fight through and get on the other side of the pandemic, the economic impact in the tri-state area is going to be a lingering. So even when vaccines are out, the damage and the scar tissue um, are still some things that we are going to be have to continue covering. And so we need to listen. So listening uh, more than I ever thought I would. Listening, listening. So just to pivot a little bit, this year has been marked by this extraordinary level of misinformation and fighting over information and what it is and, and the idea that journalists are somehow, I mean, not just somehow, they're being called enemy of the people. And um, how bad would you say the problem is and what can journalists do about that? I'd say it's bad. I'd say it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's unfortunate. You know, one of the things that we didn't touch upon, but the coronavirus was still raging and our coverage of it had to rage when our city also went through uh, part of the racial unrest that was confronting other parts of the country and touched a nerve. And with our police department here, which is often been front and center in some of those conversations and debates, to undermine the efforts of reporting and journalists uh, at such a critical time when information is key um, is disheartening. To touch upon something I mentioned earlier, in local, those relationships built over time as part of your brand for us, NBC4 New York, and the kinds of things we're covered and where we've been present in the community with our community events and with our reporting help. But for sure, some of our reporters uh, have been in uncomfortable situations and there were times where they had to go out with security escorts. Reporters become part of the target of wrath. And that's, uh, that's a scary thing. And that happened in your station? Yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, we, we, we had a few, you know, I wouldn't say any overwhelming incidents, but we, it got to the point where it was felt that for a time there, uh, security would go out uh, with, with some, of our, uh, some of our crews. Wow. Because what was happening? People were yelling things or... Yeah, and I mean, just uncertainty and anger and um, uh, definitely some verbal harassment, for sure. Whereas we were labeled as part of the enemy of whatever was being protested. And I think, you know, as a reflection of what was happening in our society overall, the anger, the disconnect was just bubbling over. We're a journalism school. What advice would you give to our young journalists? Yeah, I, 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 I like that. I, I like, A, that journalism schools are still vibrant. Uh, I was a journalism major. I've been speaking to some. I taught a journalism class. Um, I think it would be something I said earlier, though, is listen. I, I mean, I think we, that's underestimated. You know, communication, conversation, 
listening is an important part of that. And I feel like um, sometimes with our multiple inputs of data, we're trying to absorb and digest and then regurgitate a lot in a finite amount of time. And in lost in that is the ability to listen. And I always say to journalists, pay attention to detail. Something as widespread as coronavirus pandemic. Uh, at the end of the day, we're all covering the same stories, the same kinds of stories. So how will it be distinguished? And this is what I feel maybe a little self-serving, but I'm proud of our team, NBC4, is the attention to some of the details, the attention to some of the minutia, the attention going hyper, hyper local to find stories that may not rise to the headlines of the coverage or um, may distinguish themselves from some of the other narratives out there. I want journalism students to be curious. I want them to write. I want them to be honest. And I want them to go and do their thing. Thank you, David Ushery. It's always great to hear advice like that from someone who has really done it all. Yes, it is. And I was thinking that now we could give a little advice of our own because beyond these podcasts, we're always reading and watching lots of news. And uh, we used to do this back in the day when we first started the podcast. What's a story that you recommend to our listeners? I recommend Crip Camp, which in addition to being nominated for an Oscar, was also a 2021 DuPont winner. And it is a truly extraordinary documentary uh, where I learned so much about the roots of the Americans with Disabilities Act and how a lot of the activism that brought that important legislation about came out of a camp for teenagers with disabilities. And it just tells a story about a civil rights movement that I wish I had known more about. And I'm so glad that I know more about it now. Um, so Crip Camp on Netflix is my recommendation. I, th- I second that recommendation. And we're going to hear a On Assignment podcast episode a little bit later in the season. It's a conversation with the two directors that I had. and. It's a great, great documentary. Um, For my part, I'm going to stick with DuPont winners because I think they're so amazing. Um, I recommend a podcast by Radiolab called The Flag and the Fury, which is started off as a historical look at the last state flag that had the Confederate battle flag embedded in it. And it turned into a breaking news story when it suddenly became unbelievably topical. It's really intense and it wraps all this great narrative around really interesting information, important information to know, but it's so much fun to listen to and so dramatic. I highly recommend it. And uh, we're gonna have, we're gonna hear about that more later in this podcast season as well. Fantastic. Well, between these recommendations and the 60 plus episodes in the (laughs) On Assignment Archive, our listeners should be plenty busy until we're back again with a fresh episode next month. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J School grad Jack Roster Munley. We also had production assistance from our DuPont fellows, Arcelia Martin and Rose Gilbert. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journ. Until next time.